Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's be something else. It's going to be something else. Starring the three-phase blues band. Coming to a radio station near you. The three-phase blues band. That is the three-phase blues band live here on Seven Mountains Media, Hot A-C-W-Q-Y-X. Live in Dubois, Pennsylvania today. James Lowe with you here on our big broadcast. And uh, we've got more coming up here on your home for the hits. Dubois. Who's moving to Dubois? Why would anybody want to move to that shithole? I I don't know if it's a shithole or not. I'm just assuming. I'm just assuming Dubois. Dubois. My man Dubois. Dubois. Dubois, Michigan. Michigan? Is 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 it Dubois, Michigan? Is that where it is? I don't know. We're going to dial up our first guest here on our big program. Here in Dubois, Michigan. It's not Dubois, Michigan. Is Dubois, Michigan? Pennsylvania. I don't know. doesn't matter. We'll see if they pick up. We've got it scheduled. 
little ahead of time, I think, maybe. Is that a four? Your call has been forwarded to an automatic voice message system. Four one zero four seven four three eight six eight is not available. At the tone, please record your message. When you have finished recording, you may hang up or press one for more options. Call them back on traditional telephone. We will call them back on the traditional telephone. And hopefully, we get them. Good afternoon, this is Harry. Can I help you? Good afternoon, this is James Lowe with Gay Jag Radio. We had a uh, scheduled interview for around this time, so I was giving you a holler. How are you? Kirk, you still there? Yes, I'm still here. We had a scheduled interview, so I was giving you a call for that. How are you? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, uh, are, are, are you still able to do it? We just tried to call you on Skype and went to voicemail, so I figured I would call you on the phone here. And uh, Oh, yeah, this is, uh, this is better. Okay, okay. Well, that'll work. Well, uh, we're live as live can get here on our big broadcast, coast to coast, border to border on TuneIn, iTunes, iHeartRadio, and of course, AMFM247.com. And uh, as a tradition here, we always let the guests do their own introduction, just in case I miss anything. Go ahead and uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, my friend. Well, um, my name's uh, Harry Wedower, and uh, I am... Uh, a uh, retired naval officer, uh, served in the Navy for 20 years, and then uh, uh, following that, I uh, started a second career as, a, uh, as an attorney, which uh, I am now. Uh, I am also the, the proud son of uh, Donald uh, H. Whittler, who is uh, my dad and uh, is a, uh, a very badly wounded World War II combat veteran who... Uh, after uh, uh, losing both of his legs in, in his fight during the war, um, went on to a uh, uh, national and, and prominence in the field of rehabilitation for the blind um, and really became a real leader in that field. And uh, it's over just the last few years that I sort of learned more about his story. And after learning more about it, I decided that, you know, I really need to put this into a book in the hope of, of inspiring you know, veterans of, of more recent wars, uh, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, who have gone through, I think, some of the same things my dad did, as well as just, you know, for the general public, you know, kind of tell his story in the hopes that they, they might find some, some hope and, uh, and inspiration in it. Now, uh, now, tell us a little bit about this book, because this is absolutely amazing. Give, 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 give us some details on this. Sure. Uh, well, it uh, uh, it starts uh, with my, my father being a, uh, a youngster grew up uh, out y'all's way. He's uh, from Dyersville, not, uh, uh, Iowa, and uh, was uh, was drafted into the army in uh, 1943, and uh, was supposed to be an officer. But then um, the army decided it needed more frontline soldiers and uh, pulling triggers, and needed officers, and so. Uh, they uh, put him into a, a frontline unit, 99th Infantry Division, and uh, he was deployed overseas in uh, uh, October, November uh, 1944 to the front lines in, in Germany in an area called the Siegfried Line. And it was in the course of a combat patrol that uh, he was assisting another uh, soldier who had been wounded that 
and my father stepped on a landmine and, and lost uh, both of his legs and one of his eyes in the blast and was really given up for dead at that point. Uh, and it was only until the medics uh, who were carrying him out realized he was still alive that they started to move a little bit more quickly. And uh, he was transported uh, west to a city called uh, Liège, uh, which is in Belgium. And uh, four days later, while recovering in a hospital there, the hospital was hit by uh, what was called a Z-1 buzz bomb, which is a weapon similar to sort of the unguided rockets and IEDs of more recent wars. And the, the roof of the hospital collapsed on top of him, killed just about everybody around him, and uh, left him with concussion and, uh, and very little vision in his remaining eye because his retina detached. And uh, you know, managed to survive that because uh, uh, obviously I'm here. And uh, came home to the states and uh, went uh, for two years to Army uh, rehabilitation hospitals and learned to walk again, which was not easy. And then uh, uh, met my mother, started a family, and eventually lost his vision. And uh, moved to Florida, where uh, beginning in the late '60s, he got involved in work for a uh, little bit rehabilitation for the blind and visually impaired, which, you know, Florida was, was very important at that time. It really became a, a, a state and ultimately a national leader um, in, uh, in that arena and eventually won something called the, the Gale Medal, which is the, the highest award you can receive in the blindness field from the American Foundation for the Blind and was named to the, to the Blind Hall of Fame. So wow. it really follows that, that whole story of you know, literally being on the edge of death twice and uh, and then recovering from that and, and really overcoming some very very long odds to a, a very successful career now uh, t- tell us a little bit about uh, the striking parallels between World War two and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan you know it uh, the, 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 the signature issues or injuries of that war uh, World War two were in some ways very similar to my uh, to the more recent wars where you see uh, you know, a lot of uh, a lot of amputations as a result of the IEDs. Uh, you know, that was obviously my, my my father's experience. So, you know, like more recent veterans, he had to to learn to walk with you know one leg that was amputated above the knee, uh, the other below. So the whole process of having to to walk on on prosthetics, um, which you know, fortunately today I think they're a bit more advanced than they were today, but but that whole experience, I think, was was very much the same as as uh, as, as more recent veterans encounter. Uh, I think a second uh, similarity is is that um, is that I is that I think that he, my dad had to overcome some you know some some barriers, societal barriers, where you know it was not thought that. Uh, you know, that he could be as a, a very productive member of, of, of society. Um, and, 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 in fact, uh, you know, he, he became one. And I think our today's veterans sometimes, you know, face sort of that, 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 that same obstacle. In it. Uh, and uh, so I think that's a, that's a, that's a similarity as, uh, as well. And so I'd say those are uh, – and then the third, I would say, is, is the – you know, is that there is, is – that there is – you know, a, a, a real struggle uh, of, of kind of why me. I mean, my dad was 19 years old, uh, you know, about the same age probably as a lot of more of our, our recent veterans. And, 
uh, you know, like them, he uh, had, you know, some very life-changing experiences at a very young age when, you know, it's very easy to, to kind of give up hope and, and, and ponder, why me? But, uh, but you know, like more recent veterans, my, my dad went through that but overcame it. And, uh, and that's really why I want to tell the story, because after I hear veterans from more recent wars, um, you know, on the radio and the media and whatnot, I think, you know, my, my dad was in their shoes, and, and I hope that, that his story can help them. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us live here on our big broadcast. And uh, the author of The Bravest Guy is with us today here on our broadcast. Now, The Power of Optimism and Hope, how Harry's father's uh, admirable unflappability helped him endure the war and the challenges that followed. Tell us a little bit about this, my friend. You know, well, I, I, I think you hit the nail right on the head. It's, it's very much a story of, of optimism and hope, um, and that, that's, you know, very much, um, you know, if there's one sort of lesson from this book, it's, it's, it's I hope, it's, it's that, that's what people take away from, because, you know, without that, uh, my dad never would have gotten through what he did. We've got a uh, great guest with us today, joins us live here. On our big broadcast, Coast to Coast, Boulder to Boulder, tune in, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher, and the brand new Jiggy Jaguar app available in the App Store. Now, um, tell us a l- little bit about the writing process for the book and putting that together. Sure. It uh, Well, it took me longer than I would have liked. Uh, it was about a 16-year process, and um, it actually started not as a book, but just as kind of a, a, a family scrapbook idea because, you know, growing up I didn't know a great deal about what my dad had undergone. And, you know, I just wanted to learn more for my own son and, and for the my larger family. So I just started gathering um, mementos and then just interviewing them. And as I started to gather more information, I, I started to travel as well. So I went to... Uh, where he was stationed in Texas during the war and went through training. I went to uh, National Archives to review unit histories. I went to a hospital in Pennsylvania where he had been. Um, I actually went overseas and visited sort of the battlefields where he was at and uh, some of the cemeteries over there as well where some of his fellow soldiers were buried. And uh, and, and just did a lot of interviewing. And it's... It was a long process also because I think it was common with my dad with other members of World War II generations that they just didn't like to talk about the war very much. So extracting stories about what my dad went through, his days in combat, was was hard, uh, and that just took time. And uh, so it was after a long process of traveling, archival research, interviewing him, and then uh, just gathering as much... uh, you know, other information I could from family members that, uh, you know, put me in a place where I felt, well, this is a story that I can now really tell, you know, accurately and uh, in one that's hopefully meaningful to a, to a wider audience. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. He joins us live here on our big broadcast, Coast to Coast, Border to Border, iHeartRadio as well. Now, um, tell us a little bit about have, having faith in institutions, public service, while it can be messy and frustrating through the grit and determination, you can make a lasting difference. Break that down for us, Harry. 
Sure. Uh, my dad's, I think, is just an excellent example of that. Um, he started off as a, you know, an entry-level counselor um, at uh, what was then called the Florida Council for the, the Blind, and he had previously worked as a counselor at the Veterans Administration. And so, you know, he was early on, he sort of encountered a lot of bureaucracy, um, kind of an old way of doing things because that's the way it had always been done. And in Florida, you know, that the blind were basically consigned to just doing certain things, um, you know, and they were only allowed to manufacture, serve in a manufacturing kind of capacity uh, in a very narrow range of products. And that was all that the blind was all capable of doing. And my dad really broke through that mold um, because he envisioned and had a vision for a much wider field of employment for the blind in Florida and was very aggressive about seeking out opportunities, calling up employers, um, you know, getting in uh, at the uh, Social Security Administration where they could, he found the blind could serve as, as uh, customer claims representatives. In any number of employers, he just started knocking on doors and, and calling people and, uh, and then established training programs so that you know, the, the blind could fulfill you know, various uh, employment opportunities. Uh, and then the other thing he did was he became head of his agency uh, within five years of joining it, and he really wanted it to be an independent um, you know, agency that just wasn't smothered in layers of bureaucracy. So he undertook a very bold move to make it much more independent as far as its you know, organizational structure and whom he reported to and uh, took a, a tremendous risk in doing that, um, but just wanted to, to, to rid the agency of layers of bureaucracy above it, and uh, managed to pull that off, and then uh, entered into a lot of public-private partnerships because you know, his, his view was that you know, it doesn't all have to be just government. It could be you know, the government, private, public and private partnerships. And, and for example, he established the, the first uh, Center for the Multi-Handicapped Blind and Florida Training Center, which is you know people like himself who were not just blind but had other handicaps, and established one of the first centers in the nation for that. So he was always sort of an out of the box thinker, not a you know one size fits all kind of person. And, and I think in that respect was was kind of way way ahead of his time. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. Joins us live here on our big broadcast and. Uh, the uh, fantastic author of The Bravest Guy. And um, now tell us a little bit about visible and invisible wounds of war from a loss of arms, legs, uh, the faces uh, to uh, PTSD. Give, give us that breakdown, my friend. Yeah, I, I, that, that, that's a great question because I think in my that was one of the things that really struck me in my father's experience, you know, given how much notoriety that you know, PTSD, and justifiably so, has gotten within the last few years. In his day, it really did. I mean, my dad was in the hospitals, army hospitals, for two years, and he had one, literally one encounter with a, you know, psychiatrist who you know, gave him only kind of a perfunctory interview, and he was done. And I, I think, and I don't know this for certain, but I just theorized that part of the reason my father and other World War II vets you know, didn't talk a lot about the war because. You know, it just wasn't considered the thing to do. You know, you were, um, you know, back in the day, they kind of called it shell shock. 
and you know you were just sort of frowned upon, and you just weren't supposed to let it out. And and I think, and again, I'm just theorizing, but I think that 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 did some 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 damage to to veterans of that war because you know they couldn't just get it out there. You know they had to sort of live with this, you know, inside their head uh, for you know how many decades. And uh, so I I think that. You know, that's been a, a, an invisible wound of, of that war and, and, you know, how many people it impacted. I, I'm not sure we'll ever be able to tell because they just simply weren't, uh, you know, as encouraged to, to, to talk about it, whereas I think we've, we've definitely appears like we've, we've made slot strides in, 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 in the more recent wars. We've got a great guest with us today, joins us live here on our big broadcast. Now, give us the um, stark differences between post-World World War II society and today's society for some of these soldiers returning home and, and, and veterans uh, of these wars. Yeah, I, I think it's, there's some, there's some you know, better things and maybe you know, not so better things. Um, you know, what, what's better about today is to kind of pick up on what I was talking about, is I think that there's a much more of awareness in society about, uh, about, you know, PTSD and, uh, and, and, and understanding of, of veterans, uh, in, in that regard today. I think there's much more, uh, you know, visibility and acceptance in society, uh, uh about that. Um, one of the, uh, aspects that I think that perhaps the, veterans now have a, a bit more of a challenge is that, you know, World War II was such a, obviously a, a huge undertaking, and you had, you know, literally millions of veterans coming home, and, you know, just about every family in this country in one way or another was impacted war. And I think there was much more of an awareness and understanding of an appreciation for what, you know, veterans had gone through because, you know, so many families were in contact with the military through you know, a family member who had served, whereas today, you know, the wars can be, you know, a bit more, you know, out of sight and out of mind, and, and, and the veterans, you know, service can be, you know, depending on where you, you sit, their, you know, their service isn't perhaps not as, as visible and as, as, as appreciated in the wider society as it, as it was, you know, back in post-World War II. We've got a uh, great guest with us today, joins us live here on our big broadcast. Now, um... Uh, General William Sherman once said that war is hell, but for soldiers, the real hell may be the aftermath of war. Give us, give us your take on that and, and, and all of that breakdown. Yeah, I, I, uh, I was very much woken up to that sort of uh, uh, phrase during my, my research and writing of this book because, you know, I grew up, you know, as, as, you know the early 60s and, and you know, late 60s when, you know, uh, the World War II movies were kind of relatively cleaned up. You know, the the, the bad guys, and when somebody got shot, you know, people really bled, and you know, the bad guys were, you know, maybe not so bad all the time. But you know, it was a very, I was kind of a sanitized version of the war. And you know, in in doing my research about my dad and primary research, I I just realized the brutality of of, of World War II and that. Uh, just how brutal a war that was, and just how this uh, just absolutely hatred on both sides uh, of, uh, of uh, you know of lines. You know, it's hard to imagine in some respects now if you know, Germany and Japan are you know strong allies, but you know back then it was <laughs> very starkly different, and, uh, and and that and that just really struck me uh, just how uh, how gruesome and, and brutal it, it, it could be. So that was a definitely left a very kind of graphic impression 
We've got a uh, great guest with us today. Now, tell us about some of the trials and tribulations that you went through writing the book. Well, it was just really, it was just, a, it, was, it was extracting information from my father because, um, you know, he just was not like a lot of his you know, fellow soldiers from that war, very anxious to, to really talk about it. And I, uh, I, you know, I realized I wasn't going to get everything at once, so I just had to to really take time uh, just interviewing him and just you know, draw him out over a period of time. And then also I, I really had to do some painstaking research to to put together all the events surrounding his wounding, um, you know, interview uh, you know, uh, other soldiers to, to visit the sites, uh, to, to go to the National Archives. And it's just a you know, constant process of uh, going down you know, different lanes to, you know, to try to gather information, not all of which uh, you know, came up with something, but, but it just was sort of a deep research project, um, which I, I, I think I, uh, it was probably one of my greatest obstacles. And then, you know, that I, I really wanted to kind of touch and feel his experiences as well, so I really felt the need to go overseas and, and see the places in, in Germany and Belgium that he was to really you know, kind of get a touch and feel of the place. And uh, so, you know, that, that just took time. And, and, uh, um, but, but I'm glad I did it because I, I, I hopefully produced a more, um, you know, accurate story than, than I would have otherwise. We've got a uh, great guest with us today. Joins us live here on our big broadcast, Coast to Coast, Border to Border. Tune in, iTunes, Radio Loyalty, Stitcher. Now, um, who, do, who do you think is going to be the, uh, the potential readers for this book? Um, you know, I would gather it probably into uh, you know, about about four different groups. Uh, I would uh, I would think uh, you know veterans of uh, of the more recent wars and their families. Uh, uh, I think is, uh, is is one group. Um, secondly, uh, was people who uh, have uh, experience. Uh, with you know, World War II, whether through family members or you know, some other um, uh, connection. Third, I think, would be uh, anyone who's uh, had vision loss or uh, you know, family members who've had vision loss. And then finally, I would say you know, anyone, I think, just looking for a, 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 a good story and, and a really a triumph over impossible odds that's... Uh, you know, it's not made up. It really is just, a, uh, I think, it a, an amazing story. And so, uh, and people, you know, who are looking for inspiration and hope. Um, and so, so I think those those four groups is where I hopefully will will find my readership. So I've I've put it out there in all forms, in print, in electronic, uh, you know, Kindle type of form, and also it's now an all an audio book on Audible. Now, uh, going through and, and doing the audio book, what, what what was that process like? Um, it was uh, it was it was interesting because I, I felt it very important to get it out there on Audible because you know my my readership I I, you know, I hope and want to be a a um, you know, those with, with vision loss. So I I, I actually uh, went out through a, a site called ACX, which is uh, related to Audible. Uh, dot com and you can actually audition narrators and, uh, and I found one uh, uh, Molly King who just uh, was just terrific I, I think she is uh, also has a, is a uh, is sort of a military uh, 
as military parents and so was you know had grown up in the military and I think really wanted to do the book and I uh, I just love her voice and her range of, of voices so I I found her through that service and uh, so uh, um, she agreed to do it and uh, and I think produced uh, what uh, is a, just a, a great narration now uh, with with this book are you going to do a follow-up or anything of that nature um I'm not sure I'll, I'll, I'll do this uh, uh, this particular story because I, I tried to you know, kind of get it all down there, but um, I, I do have a, another book kind of rattling around in the back of my mind uh, that uh, I, I think some of the same themes as in you know, sort of overcoming impossible odds and uh, and you know people kind of coming together to overcome great odds. Uh, I've got a in a story that's set in history. And uh, in, in, in involved the military. It's calling the back of my mind. So I'm, uh, so I'm going to come out, you know, not directly my dad's story, but, but something though that uh, that might in some ways be, be similar, uh, probably be forthcoming with. Awesome stuff. Well, before we let you go, uh, if people want to correspond with you online or social media, how do they do that exactly? Sure. Um, you can reach me through, uh, through Facebook, or you can reach me through. Uh, in my my uh, website for the book, and that's at www.bravestguy.com, and you know, and you can find the book on Amazon. And you know, if you, if you read it uh, uh, and have any comments on it, I would love to get your review on Amazon. And if you listen to it, love to get your review on Audible um, or Barnes and Noble as well. So any of those places would uh, would be great. Well, good stuff. Well, I appreciate you making time, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you, sir. Thank you, sir, so much. Really appreciate it. Appreciate it. Thank you, man. Harry Wiedener with us today. We're going to take a time out, come back with more here on the big program. This is the King of the Mountain, Jeff Jarrett, and you're listening to the Diggy Jaguar on diggyjaguar.com. Today's podcast by Amazon. It's really easy to support the Jiggy Jaguar experience before you shop on Amazon. And we all know you do. Go to the website, jagshow.com. Click on the Amazon banner on the homepage. It's that easy. Remember, that's jagshow.com. Click the Amazon banner before you shop. Check out audibletrial.com slash jaguar. For you, the listeners of the Jiggy Jaguar Experience, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. Personally, I recommend End of Watch by Stephen King. Check out audible.com. It is amazing. Check out A-U-D-I-B-L-E-T-R-I-A-L.com slash J-A-G-U-A-R. That's audibletrial.com slash J-A-G-U-A-R. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash jaguar. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash jaguar for your free audiobook. But an incredible new marketing partner on Transmedia Worldwide, Change of Heart, a film by Pickle Ticklick Video Club. Uh, that's right. A love story about two women torn apart too soon. 
Let's tell you a little bit about this. Check out Indiegogo.com. With this film, we hope to remind people that it wasn't long ago that gay marriage was illegal. And the LGBT community were second-rate citizens with limited legal recourse. Through change of heart, we will relieve a moment prior to legalized marriage in the United States. Leading character, Becky, must overcome the limitations placed on her by society, as well as make a life-altering decision regarding her loved one. Check it out on Indiegogo.com. That's I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O.com. Change of Heart, a film. Check it out today. And tell them you heard about it here, Transmedia Worldwide. Jiggy Jaguar. Neil Bortz with us today. He's If they put Fox News on, liberals will complain. Uh-huh. If they put CNN on, conservatives are going to complain. Jiggy Jaguar. We've got Tom Donahue with us today. I started to organize, uh, no, not like Obama. Jiggy Jaguar. Publisher of Talkers Magazine, Michael Harrison. And uh, it's a lot of fun, and, and it's very informative, and uh, it, it does a lot of things. One, it, it's www.jiggyjaguar.com. We've got an incredible new marketing partner with us today, Transmedia Worldwide. Q-L-I-P-P is the ultimate tennis performance sensor. It measures every part of your stroke, analyzing the spin, speed, and sweet spot accuracy of each shot. Designed to improve your game with the most advanced analytics possible, check out igg.me slash at slash I-P-P. Oh, that's right. It's an amazing, amazing new product. Check out igg.me slash at slash q-l-i-v-b. This is the King of the Mountain, Jeff Pierce, and you're listening to the Diggy Jaguar on diggyjaguar.com. Yay, indeed. Download our app, jiggyjaguar.us. Find it in all the app stores. Also, Tune in, iTunes Radio Loyalties. Well, we're going to get a hold of Dr. Cleet Bullock here in a few moments. The fantastic Dr. Cleet Bullock. He's our buddy. We love him. And we are going to go to Dr. Bullock here in just a second. We're calling him a little early. About 30 minutes early. But, uh, we'll see if he picks up. Hello? There's Dr. Bullock. How are you, sir? It's James giving you a holler. How are you? Who is this? James Lowe. You got an interview with us in about, an, in about 30 minutes, but I wanted to know if we could do this early. Sure. Okay, well, let me uh, let me get everything set up here real quick. We've got uh, Dr. Cleet Bullock with us today. Uh, conflicting with Trump is the topic, and uh, dive. we're going to be diving deep inside the mind of Trump with the authority on educational policy and leadership, our good friend, Dr. Cleet Bullock. And uh, Dr. Bullock, you've got an experience... 40-plus years of public education. Uh, we, we've been talking to you about education and life and everything for like the last four or five years here. Um, give, us, give us a little bit of the management style and the, uh, the, the conflict management style that President Trump tends to use, my friend. Give us an inside scoop here. Well, there are five different conflict management styles. There is competitive collaborate, compromise, accommodate, and avoidance. Okay. 
Yes. Uh, the style that we have seen on TV uh, tends to be competitive. If you look at what he did to the uh, 14 candidates who were running against him, I think it was 14, wasn't it? Was it 17? I, I, I believe it was 14, 17, something like that. Yeah. He, he, he took them all on. Yes. And it was, I win, you lose. And he won. <laughs> so we have seen that style. And then when you go to the Paris peace agreements, he used the competitive style again. He says, I'm going to make America great again, and this, this uh, agreement uh, puts us behind the eight ball. We can't do it. So we are pulling out. So he won. They lost. They lost the support of the United States, primarily because uh, he said, you know, the agreement gives China until 2030 to meet any of the conditions of the agreement, and we got to meet them the first year. So for 13 years, China is going to have it over us. Does that make sense? Yes. Yes, it does. Okay. We've, we've got uh, then, Dr. Bullock. Then Go got ahead, the Cuba deal. Yes. You've got the Cuba deal. He, he uh, poo-pooed that one and pulled out some of the things that Obama had agreed on there. I'm, I'm not exactly sure what all was involved in that, but uh, there again, you know, he says, we didn't win on that deal. We got nothing out of that deal. So that was a dumb agreement. So, you know, we're not going to honor it. So what's going to happen there, I don't know. But it was, again, a... But if you look at the other side of that, Obama, that was accommodate. He gave Cuba a whole bunch of stuff and got nothing, nothing out of it. In the Paris Peace Agreement, he got the agreement, but he gave up everything to get it. It was, again, a lose-win. Then when you look at Iran, the Iran Agreement, my God, was that accommodate or not? <laughs> I mean, we got nothing out of that, and we gave away billions of dollars. Uh, if you look at the five people at Guantanamo who he cut loose, he didn't get anything out of that. Just turned them loose. And the uh, deal to get uh, uh, whatever his name back, that soldier. Yes, who, yes. Yeah, we, you know, we got one person out of five. Wow. Uh, that was accommodate. So I have not seen Trump use accommodate yet. Um, now, whether he does or not, whether that's in his baggage, he's a very complicated personality. Um, <clears throat> in The Art of the Deal, and I have not read the book, but I taught collective bargaining. Uh, and what's going on right now with Congress on the um, uh, health care thing is a classic case of negotiations okay um so you've got the four conservative senators and the five moderate senators each of which are in a state of conflict so there's got to be negotiations because trump needs 50 votes so how is that going to play out are they going to collaborate and try to get to win-win so that the conservatives get some of the things they want and the moderates get some of the things they want? That's collaborate. I don't think it's going to be collaborative, I'll be honest with you, because I don't know that there is a deal 
where each side can get something that they want and they'll say they'll vote for it. It's going to be a compromise of some kind. That's my guess. And a compromise is lose-lose. So competitive is win-lose, collaborate is win-win, compromise is lose-lose. So the four conservatives are going to have to give up something that they want out of that bill, and that legislation, and the moderates are going to have to give up some of the things that they want put in. Yes. Uh, and they say there's... Trump says he's going to get a deal. So I'm guessing that Trump is going to call each of these nine people into the Senate, into his White House, and have a talk with him. And maybe he's going to accommodate them in some way. I don't know. <laughs> uh, uh, I'm, I'm thinking he's going to have to. To get a deal, but you know, I I have not seen him use accommodation as a style. I lose, you win. Yeah. Uh, at least not in public. Now, with the news media, his style is competitive. You bastards, you're too damn left. <laughs> yep. Uh, yep. Liberal, uh, false media. Yeah, you you aren't going to get me. I'm going to win this battle. And to some extent, he is. Um, but anyway, those are the five conflict management styles. How much time do we have left? We've 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 got uh, we, we've got a uh, I don't know fifteen minutes here w- w- with you, my friend. Fifteen twenty minutes. We've got Doctor Cleet Bullock with us today, talking okay. conflicting with Trump. And um, now I know that there's a lot of folks out there, and we talk about management style in this broadcast with you all the time, my friend. Um, wh- which is the preferred management style that most leaders use, whether it's political leaders or business leaders? <laughs> Give us your thoughts on this, my friend. Okay. Uh, here's the style most would say they use, and here's the style that comes across. And Trump does both those. Okay, Servant leadership is the preferred style. Self-serving leadership is the style that many people perceive Trump to have. They say, does he really, is he really doing this to make America great again? Or is this really for his ego, self-serving, okay? A lot of people would say it's self, that his, uh, he is self-serving, okay? Yes. And that his family is self-serving. There, as they come across, to me, I see him as a servant leader. He's just doing too many things that are costing him money, costing him time. And, God, that guy rolls up his sleeves, and he is in the, the thick of it all the time. And I don't see that as self-serving, but other people um, do. Uh, when I talked to this, interviewed all those students in West Virginia and asked them what they liked about school, they said, the teachers, uh, and I said, what don't you like about school? And they said, the teachers, we, we've had this on your show before. And they said, well, some of the teachers care about us, and they listen, and they'll help us, and they're there to make sure we learn. And then these other teachers come in with their cup of coffee, plop the feet up on their chair, and they say, look, you guys, if you're here to learn, I'm here to teach. If you're not here to learn, it's your problem. They don't care about us. They don't listen to us. All they want is their paycheck. So 
if you were to ask those teachers, are you here to serve the needs of the kids? Absolutely, they'd say. When I ask the teachers what they like about their school, they say the administration. What don't you like about it? The administration. They perceive many principals and central office and superintendents to be self-serving. They are only there until they can get a better job. They don't care about us at all. All they want to do is raise the test scores and move on to the next position. Yeah. They, they come across as self-serving. Uh, in the two books, there's two new books out now. They're both on Amazon. Uh, the style that's there is servant leadership, and I give a number of techniques that they can use to make sure they come across as self-serving. Um, <clears throat> I don't know. Uh, what Trump's going to do to come across as a servant leader. Um, every once in a while you'll see something on Facebook that he has done that proves that he is a servant leader. Some nicety he did for this family and that family, um, where he sent cars out to get them, where he sent money, where he called them, and so forth, you know. Um, so he has done some things to come across as a servant leader and, of course, make America great again. He says, I am here to serve the needs of the people. The pulling out of the Paris uh, Climate Agreement, he is saying, this does not help America. Uh, with Cuba, he's saying, this does not help America. So he's doing some things that says, yeah, I am here to make America great again. And my God, my portfolio... Uh, I've been pulling out of that, 4% out of that. i pulled out over $100,000 in the last eight years. And I've got more money in there now than I had before I started. So there's a lot of things that um, I can support him as a president. And I do support him as a president. There are things I don't like as a person that he has done, like all this name-calling, this useless yes, name-calling. Yes, uh, I don't uh, understand that either. <clears throat> There's just no no reason for that. But uh, we talked about the five manage, conflict management styles. How yes. about we talk about avoidance? Okay, is let, there let's any, go there. Is, is there a good reason to avoid conflict? Absolutely. There are times when you need to take it on and not be a wimp, and there are times when avoiding it is the wisest thing you can do. Uh, there are four techniques described in Chapter 2 of Book 2 um, that deal with conflict. Everything that I have dealt with in my 14 years as a school superintendent and the other two authors, we poured into one chapter on common sense conflict management, and that's what it is, common sense. Okay, here is my favorite. My favorite technique, when I'm trying to, let's say I've got an employee or a kid, my own kid, who is not obeying a rule. Let's say the rule is you must be in by 1 o'clock with the car on a date, no matter when. You take the car out, if you're not in by 1 o'clock, when you come home, I'm in your face. Okay, I'm in my kid's face. The rule here is that you be in by 1 o'clock, but Dad... We had this big argument that started about 12.30, and I just couldn't get out of it. You're going to be in by 1 o'clock. Dad, I ran out of gas on the way home. You're to be in by 1 o'clock. 
dad, you're to be in by 1 o'clock. Broken record. No matter what the kid says, I, I broken record it. I'm not going to let him suck me into whatever the reasons are why he was not there at 1 o'clock. So with any employee who violates a rule that you have or has done something wrong and you have talked to them about it before, you've broken record it. You ever done that? Yes, yes, indeed, Doctor. I have, and I've, and I've also been a victim of that on several occasions. <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it works, doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> okay. Here's my favorite one. It's called fogging. Now, I don't know where this came from, but when I was a beginning school superintendent, I had a board member that I just could not get along with. So there was a conflict management workshop in Philadelphia. And I told my wife, I says, I'm going to go to that conflict management workshop because I've had no training in dealing with conflicts, and I've got them with this superintendent. So I went to this all day long, and there was a technique they used there they taught called fogging. And what it is is let's suppose somebody insults you, and you don't want to get into it. Let's say, for example, they say, that's the stupidest thing I ever saw anybody do. Now, fogging, you could say, well, any, you could say that. Fog. That's possible. Fog. Could be true. Fog. You don't ever agree with the statement. Does that make any sense? Uh, yes, but break it down for us a little bit more, my friend. Uh, well, you're going to have people who insult you at some time, and it, they they come back at you as a person, okay? And they tell you, that was the stupidest thing I ever saw anybody do. Wow, you really screwed up on that one. Oh, that's possible. You never agree with the accusation because you're not going to get into it. Uh, my normal behavior way back when would have been, why did you say that? Why did you say that? And bang, it's you're on the, the back and forth. They're going to say, well, oh, that was because you said that. Da, 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 da. I, well, I didn't say that. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. And on and on with the argument that ensues. When somebody insults you, if you try to defend what they said, you've got an argument because they're going to defend what they said, right? But if you fog it, it's a plop. It just drops. They can, they can say the same thing. Well, it was stupid. Well, you could say that. Yeah, it was stupid. Okay, I heard, I heard what you said. You never agree with it. That's called fogging. Now, let's suppose it really was a stupid thing that you said. Well, let's suppose Trump. Remember the, the uh, video or the tape of him talking about women? putting your hand down there? Yes, yes indeed. Okay. If he had used one of my techniques instead of, where did you get that? If he had said, yeah, that was the stupidest thing I ever said. Negative assertion. If he had said that and, and not tried to defend it as locker room talk and where did you get that and we were just two guys out, I didn't know, and on and on with his defense 
uh, attempt to defend why he said what he said. If he had said negative assertion, that was the stupidest thing I've ever done in my entire life, and I apologize. I think it would have gone away. At least it wouldn't have been on the air for, what, months? <laughs> and it's still, on, it, yes. it's still on the minds of, of some people. I was on a radio talk show at 4 o'clock with a, uh, a person in Northern California, and she could not get that out of her mind. She says, I can never forgive him for some of the things he says. And I says, I can't forgive him for that either because he really hasn't apologized. I says, I don't like a lot of the things he has done, but he is our president, and I support him as our president. So we just kind of dropped it right there. But, yeah, that's still on a lot of people's mind that he would say that. What kind of person would do that? What kind of person would insult people the way he does? And yet, this guy does some fantastic things as president. So the fourth way to avoid a conflict. You've got broken record, fogging, negative assertion, and negative inquiry. You say, somebody says, that was the stupidest thing I ever saw anybody do. And you say, well, what could I have done that would have made that better? Negative inquiry. Uh, powerful technique. It takes the sting out of everything because it says, hey, I hear you, and I agree. What Give me some help. What could I have done that would have made it better? And get some feedback uh, from the person. Now, instead of being your accuser, they are your helper. It's a nice switch, don't you think? Very much so. Very much so. Yeah. We've got uh, Dr. Cleet Bullock with us today. Uh, talking today, uh, the topic conflicting with Trump. We are uh, talking uh, about the, the inside the mind of Donald Trump as far as... Uh, uh, just different things that, that he's doing as far as conflict resolution and things like this. Um, he, he gets a lot of interesting response from the media and from folks, uh, the, the normal folks and, 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 and folks in Washington. Um, how do you think he should deal with the, with the response that he gets? Or is he dealing with the response that he gets the appropriate way, Doctor? I'm not quite sure what you're asking me. Uh, well, what what what, uh, yeah. what I'm wondering is is for for instance with the media, the the media gives him all sorts of uh, of, of feedback and all sorts of problems where they're 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 shunning him, they're 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 doing all sorts of things there. The general public they love everything he does. Um, is is there a certain way that that he should should should, should what I'm trying to figure out, Doctor, is with how can he get the general public and the media to both be on the same side and give him the same response? Because the general public loves everything he does, but the media hates everything he does. Yeah, I hear you. Um, if I were in his shoes, and with my 78, I'm 78 now, God, I can't believe I'm this old. I don't feel that old, but... Um, I've got over 50 years of dealing with conflict as a teacher, principal, superintendent, college professor, and uh, I taught collective bargaining uh, for a number of years at Ohio, at Ohio University and uh, um, two other universities in Ohio. 
I tell you, if I were in his shoes, this is what I would do. I would have a social uh, with hors d'oeuvres and drinks, and I would invite the news media in for a social. And I would ask them negative inquiry. I use negative inquiry. Folks, I need to get along with you. I want to get along with you. You are the eyes and ears of the public. And I'm asking you, what do you want me to do to repair our relationship? Here, I'm going to give you three three-by-five cards. What do you expect of me as a president that will make our relationship better? That's the expectations diagnosis that I describe in Chapter 2 of Book 1. As a school superintendent, I went to my teachers. Now, if you think there isn't conflict between teachers and the superintendent, it's there before you even walk through the door. Uh, the same is true between a principal and teachers. There are teachers who automatically hate uh, the top dog. Um, so you go to them and you say, what do you expect of me as your superintendent? And you have them three, three by five cars. What do you expect of me as your principal? Teachers go to the kids. You think some kids don't dislike their teacher? They do. Because I've asked, I've interviewed them, and I know that. You go to the kids and you say, what do you expect of me as your teacher? You give them three three-by-five cards. Now, if Trump were to have a social with the media and say, I want better relationships with the media, what do you expect of me as the, super, as the president that will make our relationship better? And he would get three cards from every reporter out there, every news media representative, and he would sort them into common piles because there's one thing on each card, and he would paraphrase what's in each pile. Then he would do a memorandum to each of the people who attended and say, this is what you said you expect of me. These are the things I believe I can, where I can meet your expectations. Okay? And he would put a check mark by all the ones where he thinks he can meet the expectations. Then he would put an X by expectations they have that he is unwilling to meet. And he would explain why he's unwilling to meet them. I think that, what do you think about that? I think that's excellent. I think that is an excellent way to get the folks that aren't on your side on your side, Doctor. Yeah. Well, it says, I care about you, I'm listening to you, I'm willing to change my leadership, I just need to know what you expect so I can adjust my leadership style more to meet your expectations instead of going around like a lone wolf, which is what you perceive me to be. I don't want to be that. I want to be your president as well as everybody who's out there in the news media. I want to be your president, too. I don't want to be against you, it's and excellent. I don't want you against me. Can we get together on this? <laughs> I'll tell you, Doctor, it is excellent. <laughs> now, uh, we are just about out of time, my friend. Before we let you go, uh, do you have any books or anything new coming well, out? There are two, there are two new books, uh, School Climate and School Culture Vis-a-Vis -vis Student Learning. It runs about 20 bucks. It's five chapters, and it tells you how to completely reform your school. 
to the point where kids like coming and teachers don't quit. They like coming. Okay, that's book one. Book two is called Enhancing School Culture and Climate. It deals with two of the major problems that principals and teachers have. One is communications. Chapter one is on interpersonal communications, the five basic interpersonal communication skills. You can have me back on that one. We can definitely, talk. definitely. We can talk about how do you communicate with people. What are the five basic skills? That's chapter one. And then chapter two is conflict management, and openness and trust is a major, major problem. And it's a major problem in marriages. It's a major problem in all organizations. And right now, in in uh, the White House, openness and trust, it isn't there, except for the close inner circle. And with uh, Congress, the Senate, and uh, the representatives, openness and trust, they hate each other. They don't trust each other. Uh so there are two chapters in the book two on how do you build openness and trust. Uh, we could talk about that. Well, openness has two factors and trust has five factors, and how do you get at them? Um, anyway. I, I definitely want to have you back, and uh, we, we, we definitely, sometime in the fall, uh, need to get need to get you back on the TV show because that was a that was an interesting uh, discussion uh, earlier this year. So uh, I, I I thank you for being with us. And well, it's uh, always fun being on your show, Jimmy Jagger. Hey, I'll tell you, you you are you are the guy, my friend, and uh, I, I enjoy our talks. And uh, have yourself a wonderful wonderful rest of the week and happy Independence Day, my friend. Next week. I appreciate that. You too. Thank you, my Take friend. Care. We'll talk then. Cleet Bullock with us today. That is that. We are going to take a break and see you later. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial, LLC, member SIPC.